Was gun control after Parkland all for naught? Why was South Florida's largest Muslim group canceled in Coral Springs? And how do we fix Miami's big asylum case backlog? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll look at bills in the new Florida state legislative session that would roll back gun control measures passed after the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School six years ago. We'll also discuss last week's cancellation of the South Florida Muslim Federation's annual gathering. Is it a case of Islamophobia amid the Gaza crisis? And we'll ask what can be done about the record logjam of asylum cases in U.S. immigration courts like Miami's. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. If you believe in even a modicum of gun control, then one silver lining did come out of the otherwise horrific massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland in February of 2018. After a 19-year-old gunman there killed 17 students and faculty with an AR-15-style rifle, Florida passed a surprising number of gun control laws. Among them was raising the age for buying rifles and other long guns from 18 to 21. Another mandated a three-day waiting period before buying those kinds of weapons. Fast forward six years, however, and those measures stand a good chance of being rolled back in the Florida legislative session that opened this month. Republicans have introduced bills to lower the rifle purchasing age back to 18 and one to eliminate that three-day waiting period. This comes after a law allowing people to carry concealed weapons without a permit took effect last year. But there are also gun control bills in this session, such as one that would close the gun show loopholes on buyer background checks. Should Florida be reconsidering its post-Parkland gun control measures this way? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to discuss what the legislature will possibly do on guns in this session is State Representative Christine Hunchovsky, a Democrat from Parkland who is sponsoring the gun show loopholes bill, and Robert Shentrup. He's organizing manager for Team Enough, the Brady campaign's youth-led initiative to prevent gun violence. He's also the brother of Carmen Shentrup, one of the Parkland shooting victims. To start, however, we also have with us briefly here Republican State Representative Joel Rudman. He introduced House Bill 17, which would eliminate the three-day waiting period. He joins us, as I understand, on the road and route from Tallahassee. Dr. Rudman, thank you for talking with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Dr. Rudman, can you explain for us why you feel the three-day waiting period should be rolled back? And, and to clarify, I just want to confirm... Does the bill as it stands now, uh, it would only eliminate the waiting period for handguns? Uh, could, could you clarify that for us, please? Actually, I'm glad you asked. Uh, the bill as filed will be amended uh, before its first committee. Okay. Uh, the bill as filed has some constitutional issues pertaining to the waiting period. Uh, in a nutshell, we are not against a waiting period per se. The, the intent of the bill is to put a time frame or a shot clock, if you will, 
on the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Under the current statute, which goes back to 2018, as you alluded, right. the statute was changed in 2018 to give the Florida Department of Law Enforcement anywhere from a minimum of three business days to complete a background check to a maximum of whenever. I mean, there literally is no time frame on when a background check should end on a person. So in reality, what we're seeing in the Florida panhandle and across the state, we are seeing law-abiding citizens purchase a gun legally through a federally licensed firearm dealer, and we've had hundreds of people just in one location. Uh, in Milton, Florida, there's one dealership that gave me a list of 500 customers who were waiting longer than six months to clear their background check. And again, make no mistake, these are law-abiding citizens who were not uh, declined. Uh, they had done nothing wrong. It's just that to complete the check, uh, it was taking an inordinate amount of time. And again, it all goes back to the law of unintended consequences. In my mm -hmm. opinion, when you give any government agency, whether it's FDLE or Department of Corrections or, 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 or even the State Department, when you give any government agency all the time in the world right. to complete a pretty simple task, guess how long that task is going to take? It's okay. going to take all the time in the right. world. And we, we have to put some limits on that. Okay. Thank you for explaining uh, your bill's rationale for us then, Dr. Rudman. But in, in the larger picture, I also wanted to ask you, how do you respond to gun control advocates who fear that by reversing measures that were adopted after Parkland, Florida is simply inviting future Parklands? So as you stated to your audience earlier, I'm a family physician. I've been a doctor for over 20, almost 25 years now. And I can tell you that when you're under pressure, you know, when you're, when you're feeling the heat, that's usually when you make the worst decisions. And decisions have to be made in a deliberate fashion. You have to know the consequences of what you're doing, both intended and unintended. In my opinion, the decisions that were made in 2018 were made as kind of a spur-of-the-moment decision. Uh, now that we have the benefit of hindsight, we can see which measures were productive and which measures were successful. And we can also go back and re-examine and logically conclude which which changes and which measures were counterproductive. And certainly, when you have law-abiding citizens that are trying to protect themselves and defend themselves from the criminals, and they are not able to defend themselves, certainly that was an unintended consequence. Okay. I'm sure we can all agree. In fact, that okay. FFL dealer I'm referring to in Milton, mm -hmm. Florida, yeah. handed me a list of 51 customers who had been waiting over two years for their purchase. Right. And we all know that's not okay. the intent of the law. And before we leave you, sir, since we also have your Democratic colleague, Christine Hunchowski, with us, can you offer your opinion on her bill to close the gun show loophole and make sure all gun purchases and background checks are done through licensed gun dealers? To be honest, I have not uh, taken a look at my friend Christine's bill, but I would be glad to uh, now that you've brought it to my attention. Thank you. Okay. Well, Dr. Joel Rudman is the Florida State Representative for District 3. Dr. Rudman, thank you very much. Thank you. So, Representative Hunchowski, I'd of course like to ask your response to Dr. Rudman's rationale that he just uh, laid out 
for rolling back the three-day waiting period uh, that, that his bill addresses. Um, what is your response to that? Yeah, thank you so much. And, and um, while I appreciate um, his comments, I was there when um, I was up in Tallahassee advocating for a solution and a response to what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And um, while things were done um, quickly, they were done incredibly thoughtfully with stakeholders, all the stakeholders at the table. And I believe uh, the legislation that passed is, is gold standard in so many ways. And the reason I know it wasn't a mistake is because we have not had another mass school shooting like the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school shooting since in the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. Do you, however, see Dr. Rudman's bill passing to eliminate the three-day waiting period? I think there is always a chance that something like that passes. Um, I don't think it's good public policy. I don't think there's anything that will make our community safer by um, limiting uh, the waiting period um, the way he would like to. The whole part point of a waiting period is so that there's a cooling off period. Uh, there is data showing how it helps reduce suicide and um, impulsive acts like a school shooting. And so I think it's um, heading would be leading us in the complete wrong direction by um, passing his legislation. Robert Shentrup, uh, thank you also for joining us. Let me ask you your thoughts as well on Dr. Rudman's bill to eliminate the three-day waiting period, if I may. Absolutely, and, and thank you so much for having me on. Um, as Representative Andrasky said, um, you know there is good evidence showing that having waiting periods really is life-saving. Um, we saw uh, from a 2019 study uh, that not only uh, is this bill um, helping reduce the number of firearm homicides by roughly 17%, um, but that 85% of non-gun owners and 72% of gun owners themselves are supportive of mandatory waiting periods on firearm purchases. Mm -hmm. um, so not only is this uh, bill and, and this policy uh, good public health, but it also has wide support amongst the gun owners. And so, um, you know, it, it really, this bill for us, um, not only is rolling back important pieces of public safety mm -hmm. um, that were put in place after Parkland to prevent it from happening again, right. uh, but also goes against the, the will of, of gun owners here in the state. Representative Hunshovsky, I, I also want to read a statement that your other Republican colleague, State Rep Representative Bobby Payne, sent to us when we reached out to him. He's the sponsor of House Bill 1223, which would lower the age for buying rifles and other long guns back down to 18 from 21. Payne says he was originally for raising the age to 21 back in 2018, but is no longer for it because, quote, we have restricted the Second Amendment rights of 18 to 20-year-olds when they are of the accepted age of majority in our country. Men and women can vote and sign up to defend our country but can't buy a long gun in our state for sporting or protection. We have successfully implemented the protections and procedures for Florida as a result of the horrific event at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. It is now time to ensure that all individuals are not punished for the actions of a few. Representative Hunchofsky, what is your response to Representative Payne's reasoning there? 
Yes, once again, um, I respectfully disagree with Representative Payne's uh, statement. We are not uh, infringing on anyone's rights. Um, when we go back and look at Supreme Court decisions in the past, uh, these are not rights that can't have any sort of guardrails on. And uh, we have the age of drinking at 21. So this is not something that is unprecedented. Plus, there's so much data showing that um, from the ages of 18 to 21 are very um, difficult ages, um, ages where we have uh, several mass shooters uh, at schools. And I just think there is no evidence supporting how lowering the age would make our community safer. And in fact, if we go back and look at what the Biden administration was able to do with the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, they have enhanced background checks currently for ages 18 to 21 because the data is showing that that is crucial for public safety. Right. Robert Shentrup, as someone who represents youth efforts to pass gun control legislation, what's your reaction to Representative Payne's reasoning that raising the age again to buy rifles and long guns uh, uh, I'm sorry, that lowering the age, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what I'm trying to say is here that that the prior raising of the age to buy rifles and long guns back or to, to 21 essentially violated the constitutional rights of 18 to 20 year olds. Yeah, well, um, you know, I, as as a young person, you know, I I'm 24, uh, you know, I, I'm very close and I very much remember um, being uh, of the age range of 18 to 21. And frankly, I, I made a lot of boneheaded decisions in those years. And, um, you know, this bill of raising the age is reflective of the fact that um, under 21 uh, is really a time in a young person's life where, um, you know, we're just still kind of getting the hang of things. Yeah. And it's a very kind of tumultuous time in our lives, you know, with a lot of folks uh, going off to college, joining a trade, starting their career. Um, there's a lot of upheaval in your life. And yeah. one of the, the important things here is, um, you know, not only we're talking about instances like Parkland um, and other homicides, uh, which we've seen recently, uh, the number of young people of that demographic, 18 to 20, mm -hmm. um, while they're only 4% of the U.S. population, um, recently the FBI uh, released analysis showing that there's 17% of known homicide offenders. So we're seeing a disproportionate risk towards committing violence, okay. um, but we're also okay. seeing violence against um against themselves uh, rising yeah. a lot as well. Okay. Uh, and having this provision in place, again, uh, protects communities and protects young people. Um, and we've seen, you know, just from the incidents of Parkland, the shooter fell within this age bracket, right? Okay. He was 20 at the time. Okay. So really important to keep it in place. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about Florida gun legislation that may roll back or advance gun control after the Parkland massacre. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Representative Honshovsky, I want to pivot here to the gun control bill you're co-sponsoring, HB 291, which would, as I mentioned earlier, close the gun show loophole by requiring background checks on all gun purchases and requiring that those purchases and background checks be conducted through a licensed gun dealer. Why did you feel this particular gun control measure was the one to pursue at, at this particular uh, legislative session? 
Yeah, thank you so much for asking that. Um, so HB 291, which we call the Responsible Gun Ownership Act, is exactly that. It's about responsible gun ownership. And the idea came from actually speaking with gun owners. For example, uh, we call it the uh, gun show loophole, but what it really is, is you're not required to go through a background check in a private sale. So what this uh, bill would do is require that all sales of guns and all purchases of guns, um, the purchaser would have to go through a background check. Mm -hmm. uh, additionally, it has provisions for safe storage of firearms to make sure um, when somebody's purchasing a firearm um, and, and they have it on their property, it's in a lockbox or it has a trigger lock. It's also asking for education when somebody's purchasing a firearm that they are mm -hmm. given some material to talk about the importance of safe storage. I mean, how many times are right. we hearing um, people not safely storing their weapons and they're getting into the hands yeah. of small children? And right. um, and it also goes even further to regulate ghost guns, which can, current, okay. can currently be purchased online okay. without a background check or be printed. Robert, I want to step back a bit with you in the couple of minutes we have left here and Representative Hunshawski and look at the larger picture here. Why do you feel we're seeing these threats to the gun control legislation that was passed in the aftermath of Parkland? It's, it's only been less than six years. I don't mean to sound cynical, but is it possible that the strategy all along was essentially let the gun control folks have their bills immediately after this tragedy? And then when everyone seems to have forgotten about it, we'll just roll it back again. Robert, as I mentioned, your sister Carmen was killed in the Parkland attack, and we, of course, want to extend our condolences as we approach the sixth anniversary next month. But as the family member of a victim, what's your perspective here? And, and I'm sorry, but we only have about a, a 30 seconds to a minute left. That's totally fine. And um, just want to thank you and your colleagues for your, for your condolences. Um, you know, when it comes to this legislation, um, I, I think your perspective of, you know, is it um, is it a cynical move? Uh, the answer is maybe, right? It's it's very much possible. But we do know um, that the reason this law passed is because Floridians were in strong support of these common sense policies to save the lives of their loved ones um, and protect their families. Okay. Uh, and passing the both of these bills to remove waiting periods, to roll right. back the age, um, would be going directly against the majority will of okay. the voting population in Florida. Right. And we need to protect everyone in the state. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Florida State Representative Christine Hunshawski is a Democrat and represents Parkland. Robert Shentrup is the organizing manager for the Brady campaign's Team Enough. Many thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, why was a large South Florida Muslim gathering shut down in Coral Springs? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Last weekend, the South Florida Muslim Federation, an umbrella group of local Muslim mosques and organizations here, was scheduled to hold its annual conference at the Marriott Hotel in Coral Springs. But just days before, the Marriott canceled the event because of pressure from activists who accused it of being a, quote, anti-Semitic meeting of Hamas sympathizers, referring, of course, to the terrorists who committed the October 7th massacres that sparked the current war between Hamas and Israel. The South Florida Muslim Federation strongly denies its conference was about anti-Semitism or support for Hamas. 
The event's cancellation has raised the larger issue of whether Muslims are now the target of increased Islamophobia because of the Gaza crisis. And it brings up the debate about whether that community here should take greater care to distance itself from groups like Hamas, or whether that expectation is just an unfair double standard that's not applied to other religious or ethnic groups. What's your view? If your intention is to make an anti-Muslim or anti-Jewish remark, don't even bother contacting us. But if you have a thoughtful perspective on the matter, call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio to discuss this is Jalal Shihadi. He's a spokesman and legal counsel for the South Florida Muslim Federation, which itself is based in Coral Springs. Is, is that correct? That's correct. Jay, thank you for being with us. I want to start with the basic accusation that was thrown at the South Florida Muslim Federation Conference that was going to be held last week at the Coral Springs Marriott. And I should point out, the accusation was made primarily by a group known as the Middle East Forum, which has a controversial track record and has been criticized by watchdogs like the Southern Poverty Law Center for being an anti-Muslim organization. The Middle East Forum denies that criticism, but nonetheless, it accused the Federation Conference of being a, quote, anti-Semitic meeting of Hamas sympathizers. It pointed out, for example, to some past comments that some of the invited speakers had made and that it, that it claimed were anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. And it turns out the Marriott Hotel, as well as some Jewish and business organizations like the Parkland Chamber of Commerce, agreed. Jay, what do you feel was behind this campaign to cancel the conference in Coral Springs? So there's an individual with this group that you mentioned, the Middle East Forum, that has a history, a track record of decades of essentially tying every Muslim with terrorism. They, he plays on anti-Muslim tropes, and so does the Middle East Forum. And they use that to desperately try to weave together arguments that every brown Muslim person is a terrorist or a terrorist sympathizer. Now, we reached out to the Marriott Hotel in Coral Springs, and they did not respond. They did, however, issue a statement earlier from Mark Cherry, the hotel's general manager, who said, quote, We have determined there is an increased risk to safety and security of hotel guests, team members, and the community with the South Florida Muslim Federation's event at our hotel. And this, this, this statement was issued after he had been convinced by the Middle East Forum that this would be a risk uh, to, to hold the event there. Jay, you held this same event at the Marriott last year with no problems. What do you feel changed this year? Uh, so the difference this time is race. The difference this time is racism was able to win this time. Uh, this same individual with the Middle East Forum was picketing the event last year. The the event happened without uh, any issues at all. Uh, uh, but in this case, this individual was able to get the ear of both the, Park, the Coral Springs Marriott as well as the Parkland Chamber of Commerce. They bought into what he was arguing. And frankly, they, weren't, they wouldn't even take any other perspectives. They simply took the position of this bigot and ran with it. Okay. Uh, well, I, 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 again, I'm, our show is not defining this individual as a bigot one way or the other. And since you mentioned this individual, I should say his name is Joe Kaufman, a, a, a former Broward County Republican politician. Um, but was it also perhaps the, the, the situation of the Gaza war that, that, that turned uh, this situation into what happened this year as opposed to, as I said, no problems last year? So, you know, the thing is, uh, hate groups and Islamophobes like Joe Kaufman, uh, they, what they do is they're fueled by fear mongering. 
And the reality is that they, they play on Islamophobic uh, tropes. And what they do is they rely on fear in order to get people to listen to them. In the wake of October 7th, what we found is that he was able to get a warm reception from the Parkland Chamber of Commerce and the Coral Springs Marriott. And the thing is, with the Coral Springs Marriott and the Parkland Chamber of Commerce, the onus, the obligations much higher on them than random hate groups and random bigots. Their responsibility is to do their own due diligence before endorsing a position like this. And then, and then also, at the absolute very least, the Coral Springs Marriott and the Parkland Chamber of Commerce should have at least reached out to us and asked about it. And then actually even an even lower standard than that. When we pointed it out to them, they should have said, Maya culpa, we were wrong. We shouldn't have done that. But that's not what happened. here." OK, and, and I should mention, we also reached out to the Parkland Chamber of Commerce this week and they did not respond to us either. Let's make it clear, though, Jay, no matter what we think of, of or what anyone might think of the Israeli government's controversial policy toward Palestinians, Hamas, the Palestinian militant organization that rules over the Gaza Strip, committed a terrorist atrocity on October 7th when it murdered hundreds of Israeli civilians and sparked the current war that's raging there now. And I'll also make this clear. The Israeli government's military response to that atrocity itself has been remarkably brutal and has left tens of thousands of civilians dead in Gaza. So those are the two facts in this crisis. But Jay, do you feel that what Hamas did has somehow made it easier for more conservative pro-Israel groups here to have success when they try to associate Muslim groups like yours, and especially the Palestinian community that you're a part of, with Hamas, as we saw this month in Coral Springs. So, I, so first, I'm here on behalf of the South Florida Muslim Federation and not, right. not on behalf of the Palestinian group, but uh, uh, either in no, I just want I just wanted to mention you yourself are a, a, a Palestinian. That's absolutely Palestinian correct. American. I'm yes, Palestinian. Okay. I grew up in Palestine. Right. Uh, I, I think in the wake of October seventh, it is allowing people to be receptive to arguments that they otherwise would absolutely reject, uh, and and that's why it's important that we're giving people latitude and understanding when they're confused. I would say that this has gone way beyond that uh, because these organizations were reached out to and they still didn't correct course. But yes, I think in the wake of October 7th, we're beginning to see a higher level of sensitivity and people to begin to accept arguments that otherwise they know would be blasphemous. But what's your reaction when some suggest that the reality here, and I'm not saying that reality is fair, but that the reality here is that the Muslim community, as a result, needs to choose its rhetoric about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, Palestine conflict more carefully so as to avoid controversies like this. They would point, for example, to the hot water that the leader of the otherwise very respected Council on American-Islamic Relations got into last month when he did not choose his words very carefully and ended up sounding like he was publicly praising Hamas's October 7th actions. And now the White House has disavowed his organization. What What is your response to that mix of... of, of so uh, argument a, a, a couple of responses first you know if the, we've learned anything from the civil rights movement what we've learned is when somebody tells you to sit in the back of the bus you don't explain why you just say no what's happening here is muslims are being asked to explain something that's happening across the world for absolutely no good reason and then when it comes to this subject the truth is that that 
these anti-Muslim tropes are used to end discourse on the subject. So, for example, when you have a protest of tens of thousands of people in this country that are supporting the, Palestini the Palestinians, you will have leaders of our government. You will have large organizations coming out and saying that they're pro-Hamas uh, protests when they know that's not the case. When somebody comes to speak, a brown person speaks on national news, they will either call them a, a terrorist supporter or they will ask them to condemn Hamas or terrorism, which in and of itself is calling them a terrorist. Mm -hmm. So the reality is that that it's not hard to speak on this subject. It's actually very easy to speak on this subject. What's harder to do is speak truth to power. But essentially you feel there's an unfair double standard at play here. And, 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 and you feel that it was at play in the canceling of your conference. Absolutely. Replace Muslims with any other group and ask yourself if that, if that would be acceptable. Okay. Replace Muslims with black people, with any other other minority group and see if it would be acceptable. There is a Muslim exception okay. that for some reason people thought was okay here. And before moving on here, I do also want to mention that I, we did speak with Joe Kaufman this week and he denies, uh, he insists that he is not anti-Muslim, just for the record, that he, he insists that he works with Muslims, that he has Muslim uh, you know, associates and friends, et cetera, and that he is not anti-Muslim, just for the record, I have to mention that because as I said, we did, we did talk with him. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the cancellation of a major South Florida Muslim community event and whether it was prompted by Islamophobia. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN, but we will not give airtime to anti-Muslim or anti-Jewish remarks. So, Jay, I want to pick up from your answer to that last question I just asked, because I think it gets to the heart of the larger tension we're talking about. There is perhaps a distinction that needs to be drawn here. On the one hand, you're right. It is unfair to hold an organization like the South Florida Muslim Federation somehow accountable for the actions of a terrorist group across the Atlantic, you know, as, as you pointed out. It's also unfair to hold an organization like, say, the American Jewish Committee accountable for, for Benjamin Netanyahu's actions in Israel. I'm a Catholic, and I know it's unfair to hold my archdiocese accountable for something, say, the IRA might have done in Northern Ireland. But... By the same token, my archdiocese would be obligated to answer for a particular church or parish under its umbrella if a pastor praised IRA violence from the pulpit. And the same goes for an organization like the South Florida Muslim Federation if one of its members were to praise Hamas, right? So have you had to deal with any members under your umbrella crossing that line and if so, does that just make it easier for groups like the Middle East Forum to brand your entire federation or community as, quote, Hamas sympathizers? So I, I think that there's always instances in, in interactions where you deal with somebody that may take a position that you disagree with. It's, it's, it's impossible to do that with every member of the Muslim community. There's over 200,000 Muslims in South Florida alone, and the Federation effects, effectively represents all of them. But the Federation, just like every organization, needs to police itself and watch its leadership and make sure that they're, they're acting responsibly and with care in the way that they deal with their organization. But I will say this, there needs to be a credible reason to do that. For example, I wouldn't expect the NAACP to jump every time somebody from the KKK makes an accusation of them. I would say this is a very similar situation. If we had a credible reason to deal with the situation, we would. That has not come up. Okay. We have Jake on the line uh, from Fort Lauderdale, and uh, he has a question, uh, an important question here for you, uh, uh, Jay, if he may. Uh, Jake, you're on the line. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. 
Uh, thank you. It's an important situation. Uh, I'd like to know if that venue had a cancellation clause uh, that they could cancel like that in their contract. Uh, so, so even though I'm a lawyer, I, I'll, I'll certainly defer to the lawyers handling this, but I will say no. No, Jake. There was no provision that permitted them to cancel the contract. Okay. Okay. It seems like a clear civil rights violation. And do you have the American Civil Liberties or a lawyer that might help you on we're, this? We're, we're speaking to several several organizations, Jake, and several lawyers. Uh, so it's not it's not over on our end. Okay. Have you thought about any public action against the venue? Because uh, that makes me extremely mad. And uh, I'm not Jewish or Muslim. Thank you, Jake. We really appreciate that. Yes, we, we haven't stopped. It's been nonstop work. We're getting a new. We're going to have the event. We're going to have the event either way. We're going to. We're looking at legal action, and we're also looking at uh, a public assistance on the subject. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. Thank that. you very much, Jake. We appreciate it. Jay, back to that larger question, though. Why is it so difficult for all of our communities to thread this needle? I mean, on the one hand, to support the valid cause of a Palestinian state and self-determination on the one hand while condemning Hamas on the other, and on the Jewish side, support the valid right of Israel to exist and defend itself on the one hand, but condemn the Israeli government's excesses on the other. Why is it so hard for our communities to, to thread that needle, to navigate those nuances? So, uh, obviously, everybody has their own biases. But be, beyond that, I think in this country, it's become very difficult to speak on the subject of Palestine without being accused of one way or another. You even have Jewish groups like the Jewish Voice for Peace that's being accused of being anti-Semitic when they speak for Palestinians. You have students, for example, Harvard, when you have students that are speaking in defense of the Palestinians are being, are being gone after by very large billionaires saying cancel their job offers. In fact, we have instances of that where Palestinians are losing their job offers from college. In fact, today we're seeing in the Florida legislature, House Bill 465, that's essentially a McCarthyistic style bill that's intended to stigmatize Palestinians for anybody that quote unquote promotes terrorism. I could, as a lawyer, I couldn't even tell you what qualifies as the word promote. So it really is difficult for brown people and Muslim people to be able to speak on the subject because they're attacked every single time. So Jay, in the, in the 30 seconds we have left, how then in a very diverse community like South Florida, where we have large Muslim, Jewish, Christian, and other religious cohorts representative, how do we condition each other to, on the one hand, not make those gratuitous associations like Hamas sympathizers, yet at the same time condition each other to be more sensitive to the rhetoric we use, which seems especially important for Jews and Muslims to be mindful of at this particular moment. I think we need to be able to speak to each other, speak about the substance of the subject. And and there's a lot of relationships, both between the Muslim, Jewish, Christian communities, that we those connections are already there. We just need people to come into a room, sit down, talk with an open heart and a willingness to listen. Well, thanks. Jalal Shahada is a spokesman and legal counsel for the South Florida Muslim Federation. Jay, thank you very much. Still to come, a record backlog of U.S. asylum cases in our immigration courts, especially here in Miami. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This week, a report in the Associated Press confirmed what most of us who follow America's immigration crisis already suspected. 
Our immigration courts are dealing with a record backlog of asylum cases. And the worst of it is here in Miami, where almost a tenth of the nation's three million cases are currently being heard. In fact, those 261,000 asylum cases in Miami courts now represent the total number of cases the entire nation was handling 12 years ago. Immigration experts say it confirms how broken the U.S. asylum system is, especially as one political and economic calamity after another drives more and more desperate migrants out of Latin America and the Caribbean and up to the U.S. southern border. But what's the solution? More immigration court judges? Tighter criteria for asylum eligibility? Asylum parole reform? What are your thoughts on unclogging the U.S. asylum pipeline? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me to explore some answers is Randy McGrorty. He's executive director of Catholic Legal Services for the Archdiocese of Miami and someone who watches this situation on a daily basis. Randy, thanks as always for talking with us. Tim, thank you for allowing for a discussion uh, about an issue that often is reduced to visuals and slogans. It's a very, very important discussion that we're about to have. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised that we're having this discussion. We shouldn't be too surprised by these numbers. I myself did a big report on the pressures on the asylum system here seven years ago. So this situation has been building for quite a while. But Randy, what are the major factors, in your opinion, that have brought us to this point? In your introduction, you characterize this as an immigration crisis. And I would just ask you to broaden that because what everyone is focusing on is immigration reform and tightening immigration enforcement. That is a tool to address what is really a larger hemispheric issue. We have not, and Tim, you've been following this issue for a very long time. We, I personally have not seen this amount of people on the move in the Western hemisphere right. ever before. So there are larger crises going on that are impacting what's happening at our southern border. Right. Um, for example, the, the cartels are a huge factor in this. Mm -hmm. uh, the economies that were shut down by the pandemic is another huge factor. It's much more complex than poverty and folks seeking a better life. Um, and this it's would be a humanitarian this, crisis. Right. And this this goes to the to, to what I probably would say is, is another discussion for another time, which is attacking the immigration problem at its source instead of at the border, which is which is also a very, you know, a very, I, th I think, valid issue. But I, I think what you're pointing out is it also helps explain to us why the numbers have risen so fast in just the past few years, because those crises you're talking about themselves have accelerated so badly in just the past few years. I mean, the three million cases nationwide I mentioned, that's up more than a million over the year before, and it's triple what we saw in 2019. Um, is, is what you were just mentioning, is that why we're seeing such a remarkable acceleration of this asylum case backlog then here? Yes, and, and in particular, South Florida. So if you look at who's coming to the southern border, there right. are four large sending countries, Cuba, Venezuela, Haiti, and Nicaragua. All of them are in political turmoil. All of them are forcing people to leave and uproot their lives and, and seek safety and security. That's what people are, are coming for. They all have valid claims. Now, the issue is what do we do? What do we do with these issues? We have an international treaty and we have laws on the books that require us to vet their claims for political asylum. Many of them have strong claims. 
Cuba, for example. I mean, um, you know, we know the situation in Cuba. It's sure. a communist regime. It's repressive. Um, as a result of their political system, their economic system is in complete disarray. Right. So it's a perfect storm for and people. And you can say the same uh, thing for Venezuela. You can say the same thing for Venezuela. It's the same equation. Yes. And also, you know, I, I, I always use Nicaragua as an example of political motivations. Nicaragua historically is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. We did not see large numbers of people on the move leaving Nicaragua until 2018 when a political crisis solidified and forced people to leave. So it's much more complex. Um, and, and, and we do have laws on the books. So what do we do with that? You know, one thing I... Uh, people miss uh, the national media focuses on New York, Denver, Chicago. Meanwhile, South Florida has received men, uh, as many or more folks right. coming. And we've quietly um, incorporated them into our community as we have done for 60 years. Right. Well, we, we um, have more of we have more of a family infrastructure here, though, that a lot of those other parts of the country you do. mentioned don't have to absorb it. Absolutely. So we have this tradition of, um, you know, someone's cousin's neighbor from hometown knows your cousin and we put in an extra bunk in the room. So right. we are absorbing them. But that doesn't I mean, I'm not, that doesn't give us pause to excuse the problem. There, right. There's an issue. And you mentioned um, to me earlier that you feel the word parole plays an inordinately large role in this crisis. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what you mean by that, Randy? So a third to a half of Miami immigration court's backlog is from Cuban cases. Uh, now, I think most of the listeners know that we have a special law for Cubans called uh, the, the, the um, Cuban Adjustment Act. Right. And that came about in the 1960s. We knew that Cuba was a politically re repressive regime. We didn't have to vet each individual case one by one to know they were eligible for protection. So we passed the, the, the Cuban Adjustment Act. Within that, though, there are certain provisions that are very, very critical right now. And one of those provisions, to be eligible for the Cuban Adjustment Act, you have to be inspected and admitted or paroled. So a parole is a way for our government to vet a person before they enter. Mm -hmm. And we, we can't figure out your case instantly, so we're going to allow you in and we'll figure out your case later. Right. So but as you, as, but as you mentioned earlier, that, that doesn't mean you're out of immigration jail, though. It means you're, you're you, still you being held. Not. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So because of the numbers of of people who would be detained is so large and it's not practical, especially for many people who are who are going to win their asylum claim particularly Cubans, we release them. And we call a specific kind of release a parole. Mm -hmm. A parole is just like when you're in jail. Um, you get paroled out. Legally, you're still in jail, but practically you're out in the community. That's right. what's happening with individuals with a parole. Right. And and, and, and Randy, but, just quickly, I sh for, for the record, yeah. I should mention people should not confuse the parole we're talking about here with the humanitarian parole for Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans and Haitians that we've been discussing for the past year. That's a different kind correct. of parole. Even, yeah. Even though it's under the same provision of law, mm -hmm. um, the concept is a little bit different. You know, we're going to let you out to to adjudicate your claim. Right. That's what's that's what's supposed to happen. But the reality is that uh, there were so many people 
And like everywhere else, um, CB, CBP, the Border Patrol, is undertrained, understaffed, under-resourced, dealing with a lot more issues. Um, right. So there were a lot of releases that did not follow proper procedure, and they were not properly paroled. Right. Uh, in South Florida, I would say possibly as many as 200,000 Cubans are in that situation. Right. Had they Had they been paroled, they would have then been eligible for the Cuban Adjustment Act. They could go through the Cuban Adjustment Act process instead right. of going through the immigration courts. The immigration courts then would have resources to address other more pressing cases. We don't have that. Okay. And advocates have been asking this administration to fix that problem, and they have been resistant and reluctant. Right. Well, that, that I'm glad you bring that up because that, that does help explain then specifically Miami's uh, uh, asylum backlog situation. You're right. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the record backlog of asylum cases and our immigration courts, especially in Miami. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Randy, let's talk about possible solutions to the crisis, which, as we know, is part of what President Biden and the Republicans are negotiating right now as they try to hammer out a deal to tighten immigration control so that the White House can have its money for Ukraine. Uh, as I mentioned, I myself took a pretty deep look at this back in 2017 when the problem was just starting to get bad. And one of the fixes the Trump administration was suggesting back then was speeding up asylum cases, putting tighter time limits on adjudicating them. But that was fairly unpopular with immigration lawyers and advocates, right? Why? Well, I think it would remain unpopular because asylum is a very complex set of laws with a very, very rich and nuanced set of precedents. It takes time. And we're talking about people's lives, Tim. And the United States, right wing, left wing, we've all come together in support of providing protection to people fleeing uh, political insecurity, right? Mm -hmm. We all agree on that. So we don't want to rush this. I would urge policymakers to look at this from a different perspective. So, you know, Take the hundred thousand, the, the several hundred thousand Cubans who are here. Instead of going one by one and reviewing their political asylum claim, let's make them eligible for the Cuban Adjustment Act. There are many right. people from Venezuela and Nicaragua um, with particular skills that are needed right now. Let's right. remove them from the asylum process and right. set them up with work authorization mm -hmm. so that they don't need to backlog right. our asylum vetting processes. There's and, and, other ways to pull this out of uh -huh. the asylum process. Right. And Randy, we should mention that when we when we talk about the Cuban cases, we're talking about the, the, the Cubans who have are, are have the I-220A forms given to them at the border. And the, 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 the big question is whether people who have that status should be then um, uh, modified to parole, as you were mentioning earlier. That's right. So you refer to, to a form, and that form really symbolizes it's an alternative way of release rather than parole. Mm -hmm. I think there's a very sound legal argument that they all should have been paroled. The Department of Justice disagrees with that and issued a decision stating mm -hmm. just that. I believe that decision was not based on sound law, but probably a little bit more um, policy. Uh, yeah. You know, the view, the view of uh, this administration is they don't want to do anything that seems a little bit too generous because it will incentivize others 
coming yeah. to the border, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now, uh, everything, everything is filtered through that perspective. Now, perhaps the most oft-mentioned solution these days is giving the U.S. asylum system the much greater resources and infrastructure it needs in light of what's going on in this hemisphere today, as you were mentioning at the outset of our conversation. Should we be doubling the number of asylum court judges, for example, as, as some are urging right now? There are two parts to that. One is just in terms of sheer resources. We do need more immigration judges and more asylum adjudicators, mm -hmm. but we also need deeper training. Um, you know, as I said, the law of asylum is very complex and yeah. very nuanced. And so you just can't pull someone uh, who has their work history in tax law, in um, labor relations, and plug them in and say, okay, adjudicate asylum claims. So we also, in addition to more judges, we need deeper resources mm -hmm. and training. Right. So... Randy, in just the minute we have left, where do you see this going? I mean, given that Congress keeps kicking the immigration reform can down the road, can we expect any real changes until after this election year, especially when the Republicans see the immigration crisis as a real liability for President Biden? Everything we're being told is that they're going to reach some kind of immigration enforcement deal. I personally believe immigration enforcement alone is doomed to failure. I think it's going to continue to be a political issue unless we take on some of the other larger immigration reforms necessary. Well, when you talk about immigration reform, just very quickly, a lot of conservatives are saying one of the problems with asylum is that we've allowed it to become too broad. Uh, is, is, that a, is that a valid uh, argument? Asylum, if you look at asylum from the perspective of protecting individuals, I don't think it's too broad. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Randy. Me. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there for time. I apologize. Randy McGrordy no is worries. executive director of Catholic Legal Services for the Archdiocese of Miami. Randy, many thanks as always. Thank you. Finally, on the roundup, a reminder that on Tuesday, the Hialeah City Council is voting on a measure to crack down on property owners using their recreational vehicles as cheap rental options in residential areas. The council cites complaints about noise and potentially unsanitary conditions. But the fact is, renting out RVs and campers has already been illegal in Hialeah since 2007, and yet residents don't appear to care all that much about the law. City officials say the problem has become more pronounced than ever in recent months. Then again, they're not all that surprised, and the rest of us probably shouldn't be either. This is a symptom of the crisis of affordable housing throughout Miami-Dade County. Hialeah is simply showing us that one of the consequences of that crisis may be that more of our communities here could begin to look like nomad land. We plan to have much more on the council's decision on next week's show. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard J. Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.